0: I'm Grant Oliphant, and welcome to Stronger Than This, a special podcast series of candid conversations about the world of COVID-19 and what we're all going through. This is not our regular We Can Be season. Stay tuned for that later this year. The Stronger Than This series features new episodes, talking with people, about the issues that we're encountering and the things we're thinking about as we travel through this very bizarre and challenging transition. Each episode is recorded remotely with a quick turnaround time from recording to release and with minimal editing. These episodes give a unique unvarnished opportunity for deeper insight into the current crisis. You'll hear from Folks on the front lines as they share firsthand experiences, challenges, victories, and most importantly, from my perspective, what they see for the long road ahead. Our hope is that the strength of community can help all of us get through what has happened, what is happening, and what is yet to come. I can't speak highly enough of the guests that we're speaking with today, the Executive Director of Allies for Children, Patrick Dowd. Allies is a nonprofit that builds alliances and serves as a bold voice for policy and practice changes that improve the well-being of all children. Patrick has been a close advisor and confidant to me for many years, especially on issues related to policy and kids and creating a better world that works for all of our children and not just for a few He was raised in Missouri, put down roots in Pittsburgh after earning his doctorate in European history from the University of Pittsburgh. He was a teacher for nearly a decade before making the move into the policy world, serving in prominent roles on both Pittsburgh City School Board and City Council. He is a nationally respected expert in the education realm, which is good because he and his wife have six children of their own all of whom are competing with you for bandwidth at the moment, as I understand it, Patrick. That's exactly right. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here and for joining us. I I really appreciate it.
1: Grant, thanks for having me and thanks for um, connecting us all like this and being a little bit provocative during this time. We need that.
0: You know, I think one of the things that we forget is we're in the middle of a crisis and it's easy to focus on just the crisis. Agreed. Immediately in a crisis, two other things begin to happen. One is that people start thinking about how to return to normal and setting the ground rules for that. And second, they start thinking about how to reinvent or reshape the world that they're going to be re-entering. There are a multitude of issues related to COVID-19 that affect children and young people, from hunger to access to technology to childcare, health, well-being of parents. When you first heard about this virus, what challenge came to mind right off the bat for you?
1: So the first thing that I think we all were thinking about was what would be the immediate impact of the virus on children. And I think we need to be thankful that at least for the moment, uh, it appears that the virus is not as severely impacting children as it might be other populations of our country and the world. So that's the first thing. But I think immediately we were thinking about all the places where children gather. Our offices are in the Children's Museum. So we were thinking about the Children's Museum and how how could kids be safe in that space and thinking about schools and really just trying to figure out what would this look like, uh, not only now, but going forward when we as you say, sort of re-enter, get on the other side of this.
0: When you began to look at the range of possibilities that were beginning to emerge, how did you decide what to tackle first?
1: Right away, I think all of us were focused on basic needs. What do I need to make sure that I'm safe? What do we all need for as a community to keep ourselves safe? And food was the top priority. When, When the governor and other governors around the country rightly shut down schools, Immediately, we were thinking about the fact that schools are an incredible source of meals for children across Allegheny County. 51% of our kids qualify for free and reduced lunch. They're getting breakfast. They're getting lunch at school. And if they attend an after-school program, they might even be getting dinner. So the school districts and others had to figure out how to step in and, and fill that breach right away.
0: As you have watched this unfold, have you been surprised by the number of immediate needs that have emerged?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think by the number and the magnitude, I think all of us were captured by or just shocked—maybe is the right word—by the photographs of lines, uh, people waiting for food. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I've been out handing out food in different parts of Allegheny County, and when when you're doing that and you you see the need up front, it's really uh, it's moving. You know, a, a lot of us had understood that connectivity while there were issues with it, was perhaps better than what we now realize it is. And so to start to see some of these things pop up really presented some serious challenges for all of us. On the other hand, you know, systems like childcare, it has been fragile for a long, long time. And when you throw in this amazing damaging situation for those providers, you know, it wasn't surprising, so to speak, that they were going to really be hard hit by this.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because I think this is one of the stories of this crisis that has not been well told. We have this group of people who we have dubbed essential workers. They are providing critical services around healthcare, food provision, working in grocery stores, and feeding us all, making sure that we all actually stay alive. So That's right. there's probably no better definition of essential. And yet, there's been very little attention paid to what they need in order to be able to provide that work. You sure. could actually argue that was the case before this crisis, that they weren't being provided an adequate wage and they were being given access to less than complete uh, services, including childcare, to allow them to be at work. But since COVID, the number of childcare centers that is open and available to them has dropped really. Uh, off of a cliff. Can you just describe that dynamic for us? What has been going on and how are folks trying to address it? So
1: as it relates to child care, I mean, you're exactly right. This has been a fragile system for a long time. It's been sort of pieced together. And I'm hoping that when we come through this, we're going to realize that's not how it should be. It is an essential system itself. But at this point, like schools, those providers closed. I think about 80% of the child care providers in the county are, you know, not providing service at this point. And when they're not providing service, they like other businesses and that's what they are. They're small businesses. They are not getting paid and they're in danger of not being able to reopen. When we think about reopening or moving back into the world of operations, if those child care providers are not there, then those workers and those families that depend upon those services are going to be in trouble. You know, Before COVID-19, we were already in a huge shortage of slots for children across the county. So if you, if you look in Port, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but something like 15, 1,600 kids who qualify for Head Start. And there were a couple of classrooms at most, you know, 10, 20 per classroom maximum, it's smaller than that really, able to serve those kids. In Penn Hills, it would be even worse. So there already weren't enough slots or spots for children. Now with these providers uh, shut down, the chances of opening are slim. uh, And then when they open, there won't be enough spots. We've got to think about how to build a system so that essential workers right now frankly, all of us going forward have access to those quality services. And I think that's one of the opportunities that this pandemic has provided for us to see that in a whole new light and in a whole new way.
0: What happens in the fall if there is a second wave of the virus? How do you see this playing out?
1: Well, I I think it's the same for schools and uh, after-school programs and child care providers. It's going to be the same For businesses, how how do we make a decision about what to keep open and what to close? You know, will we have better methods of determining who's safe to be in a business or in a school or in a care setting? Uh, And it just doesn't seem like we're going to have that at this point. And so if we don't have that, we're going to have to shut things down in order to keep people safe. That's really where we are. And it's going to be very difficult for fragile systems like after-school programs and, and child care providers to be able to operate financially in that
0: world. As we project this out, we're at a moment where a lot of people are saying, well, I care about those kids and I care about getting society back to work, but the government's out of money. We have no more money left to play with. So what do you mean a system? How do we begin to think about a system in the context of the moment that we're in? Because you know, I'm sure we already heard that argument before, and I'm sure you'll hear that argument even more vigorously now. So actually, I might push back on that and say I
1: I think that um, more people are going to understand more fundamentally the need and the value, the import, really, of child care and after-school programs. Parents have been at home, like me and everybody else, with their kids, and uh, they understand the value of the work that teachers and care providers and uh, youth mentors have been providing their kids while they were at work, and also employers are going to understand firsthand what it means when their employees can't come back because their kids don't have access to childcare. First and foremost, there's gonna be a change, I hope, or that's what I think we should be pushing for, is helping people realize that. Second of all, the resources that we need for these systems are primarily public resources. First grade through 12th grade in Pennsylvania is a, a mandate. If, if you need, want that, education, in fact, if you're of that age, you get that education, period. It should be the same from zero to five, and it should be the same after three o'clock, so to speak. We should be making sure that our kids are surrounded with these quality systems, and public funding, a commitment to that, is going to be a huge and smart investment, not just for kids, but think about the people that you're going to be putting back to work uh, and what those businesses, and they are small businesses, will be providing in those communities. And so I think we should begin to see a lot of this education work, not just as serving kids, which is what most of us care about, but it is a true form of economic development, uh, not just for today as far as you know, jobs and tax revenue and things of that sort, but preparing kids for the future and solving things like COVID-19 when we get to the next version of this, hopefully not for hundreds of years.
0: The case you just made is one I profoundly believe in, but I don't think we hear it enough that actually providing childcare as a system with public resources is a good public investment. Why is it from an economic perspective for a country trying to rebuild? Why yeah. does it make sense to do this?
1: Think of these providers, whether they are an after-school program or a, a child care provider or a, a pre-K provider. These are small businesses, and we know that small businesses are the backbones of communities, not just as far as providing a service that's essential, but they are in fact employing people. And and if we pay them a good you know, wage, then they will be able to take those dollars and spend them in the community uh, and make all kinds of investments themselves. And there's this dividend component when you look at the impact for children, those kids who are in a pre-K program, those kids who are in quality child care, when they're entering the kindergarten classroom, when they're entering the first and second and third and so on grades of the K-12 system that we're mandated to invest in, those investments change because those kids have skills that they wouldn't otherwise have had, and it reduces the burden on that system. So there are all sorts of positives as far as economic activity. On the private side and the public side. Mm. And then again, there's the benefit just for the children themselves and the development and the creativity and the benefit of human growth, quite frankly.
0: Let's shift direction for a moment. You mentioned food earlier yeah. and you've shifted from your full-time focus on policy to actually delivering food, which I, <laughs> which I think is, is marvelous. And it's precisely the spirit that will get us through this. But there's a bigger issue. Oh, yeah. Around food. Um, Nationally, 22 million children in the US rely on schools to provide free or reduced price school meals, according to No Kid Hungry, a national organization dedicated to ending child hunger. You've worked on food insecurity issues specifically as they relate to children for years. So actually, food isn't an unusual thing for you to take on. It's just the delivery side of it that is new. Are there stories of food struggles of the families of school-age kids as a result of COVID-19 that have particularly moved you?
1: It's so funny to think about the National School Lunch Program and School Breakfast Program. They've been around since, I believe, the 1940s. And the power of that program is just amazing. Think about the fact that kids every day, they're all getting breakfast. They have access to lunch. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes potentially depending on an after-school provider, dinner. The fact that schools are this locus of food is really important. And it ties directly to the work that's happening for kids during the day. You can't learn if you're hungry. And when the schools shut down, they had to figure out, hey, how does that continue? And it's been really impressive to see both the federal government and the state governments wheel into action and to provide waivers so that schools really were able to deliver these meals outside of the normal settings. And, and parents were able to come pick them up instead of mandating the kids had to be there and all that kind of stuff. So it's been really impressive to see the shift in the system. Uh, and then when you're actually out there, and it's really impressive to see folks. Uh, they come up, they take the food they're happy to be receiving it. But even more than that, it's it's another form of connection. And we're all feeling a bit isolated these days. And I think that's the real value of it. And you've seen these pictures in the newspaper or on TV or elsewhere of people helping to provide the food that also is an inspiration. But the fact is the need is there. And I just want to go back to this number. About 51% of the kids in Allegheny County qualify for free and reduced lunch. Just think about the magnitude of that for a minute. Wow! That means that they're in a household with an income of 185% of the federal poverty limit, so between 45 dollars and $50,000 annually for a family of
0: four. Mm-hmm. It was one of the earliest efforts I noticed when we were considering closing schools in the community that we had to figure out, you know, people think about education, but actually it was the food piece that had to be figured out first. And that does right. tell you about the magnitude of the number of kids who are dependent on school to be fed in America. That's right. The good part of it is that they're being fed. That's exactly right. And
1: schools are doing doing that work every day. Superintendents and school leaders are really being innovative about this. Sue Moyer, who's the superintendent in Duquesne, has figured out how to use the bus system that they have there to provide meals at bus stops for kids. That's where I've been engaged. You know, in Penn Hills, the superintendent's been doing a good job and teaming up with the community. And Sharon McDaniels, the executive director of A Second Chance, has said, hey, we, we have vehicles that we aren't using at this time. We have people that want to help. We can help deliver meals. So all of this has increased the number of kids who are participating, but it's also giving us insights into, hey, this is not how systems normally work, and we can start to think about what might be better as far as this important system and delivering food to kids in the future, whether it's during the summer programs or elsewhere. So
0: Let's talk for a moment about what people think of as the role of the schools, which is to deliver education. This, too, is an area where, in some ways, maybe schools have been more challenged than they have on the food front to figure out how overnight to go from delivering their value in classrooms to delivering it online. What are your takeaways from what you've observed of this shift? And I'd really like you to talk about what has gone well and what the gaps have been and what we're learning from that. I'd have to say I don't have the comprehensive view of this. I don't think
1: anybody really does yet. But from what we can see so far, you're exactly right. First of all, there's been overnight shift from delivering face-to-face to delivering online. In some schools where you've seen school leaders, the boards, the superintendents, others, invest in technology and alternative methods of delivery of learning, they have perhaps been the most agile and quick to respond, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't surprising. And it's not always districts that have resources, you know, just simple things, districts that are reaching out saying, you know, hey, just want to check in, make sure everybody's okay, and developing those relations and connections in this new format. Some of that's been helpful, but I think just truthfully, I think many of us had thought that the digital divide, while not solved, Uh, we had made much more progress. We'd seen investments made during the last Great Recession. We have seen reports about connectivity. Truthfully, I think we thought we had problems, but nowhere near what we have now. I think this is a wake-up call for us to try to figure out how do we make sure that all kids have access to the technology that they need, that they understand how to utilize that technology, and that that technology provides them access to the internet and ultimately to information and activities
0: like learning online. This to me actually has been one of the big surprises because I think I am guilty of having been in that same category of thinking Not that the digital divide had gone away, but that the early forecasts for how bad it would be were now behind us and that they'd perhaps been overstated. What we've instead learned is the dramatic number of families and kids who don't even have access to broadband and the bizarre policies in Pennsylvania that keep that in place. So, for example, the law that prohibits local municipalities from providing free Wi-Fi, because that would be competition against for-profit companies, And so we have literally thousands of kids who, in that sudden overnight moment of needing an education via online, didn't have access to it. As we have scrambled to adjust to this new reality, are you impressed with how quickly the community figured its way around those issues? How how would you rate how we're doing on it so far? Look, we can certainly do a
1: lot better. So anybody that says we're doing well is is probably not right. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, who would have expected we'd have to flip this around, as you said, overnight? So under the circumstances, I think we're doing the very best we can. Looking ahead, we've got to figure out, okay, what is really the state of connectivity, for example, in Allegheny County? And how do we figure out how to cobble together all the different entities and players in this space and put together a plan that can make sure that we have what we need? just going to be essential.
0: Is there a prospect for policy change coming out of this? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Policy is your world. Is there a realistic expectation that we will be able to change policy around access to broadband, that we will be able to increase resources for technology and education, that we will be able to increase resources for childcare? Do you see a prospect for all of those things? I'm fairly confident
1: that elected leaders and community
0: leaders and a lot of other
1: people are going to team up to try to figure out how to make those changes. And in addition to that, there are all sorts of agitators, and I mean that in a good way, who are trying to think about ways around that preemption clause, for example, and other ways for us to get to connectivity in a more public format. So, yes, I definitely think there are policy opportunities here. And when it comes to funding, I I know we're going to be in a rough spot here for quite some time, I think. But the things we should be focused on are the smart investments. And when it comes to kids, uh, it's going to be focusing on care and education, uh, without a doubt.
0: Who are your heroes through
1: this time? That's a good question. Well, I I will tell you, I've been watching our county leader and the New York governor as people who I think are doing a good job of really trying to communicate in their lane. They're not trying to get in front of other people like medical professionals. Uh, So I'm really pleased to see in Allegheny County. Our health department director out front talking about the health issues and being very honest and in some ways sobering us up early on. And right. I don't really know Dr. Sharon McDaniel's that well. We've come to correspond quite a bit and we've talked on the phone a lot, but uh, I've been really impressed with her desire to to serve and to genuinely bring people together. And I think there are a lot of other people like that. Um, You know, think about Kara Simonella, who's really trying to think about that care system that we're talking about for early learning and how Mm -hmm. how to bring people together around that. So both at the political level and the local level on the nonprofit side, I think there are lots of good people to be looking to.
0: That's really, really helpful. Before I wrap up, are there other thoughts that, that you wished we touched on?
1: I think the only thing I would like to sort of bring up is as, as we think about going back into schools, you know, the education system is such a big
0: and it's an
1: important system. And sometimes it's hard to change. And going forward, I do think we're going to see all sorts of things. Maybe we're going to have staggered schedules. Maybe we're going to have a need for more nurses and counselors. And I think that we really should be thinking as it relates to, to children and the K-12 system, what are some of the, the innovations we can work through right now? Recognizing that they may not all be perfect, we should sort of settle back a little bit on our expectations and try to think about how to be innovative here because we might actually be able to catapult ourselves really far ahead without even knowing it and learn something really important, not only for the kids of today,
0: but for kids coming up behind it. I'm so taken, Patrick, by the work you're doing, the role that you play, the passion you have for helping the vulnerable in our society and every parent. We haven't spent a lot of time actually talking about parents in this, but you're you're as focused on parents and the health of families as you are on on the kids themselves, and I appreciate that. But here are a few takeaways that I've gotten from this conversation that we shouldn't have a system that is so fragile. We really need to redesign this system to be a system so that it can be durable in moments like this. That's a good economic move. People have too often viewed that as a social move. The fact that we live in a society where food is so fragile, where so many are going hungry, where 51% of kids in Allegheny County in some way depend on school for their next meal. That is a sad statement about our society, but it also is an illustration of the importance of the public programs that we have in place and of their flexibility at a moment like this, and that's actually a tribute to those programs and to society. You've said that maybe this is an opportunity to reinvent that system, though, and that we can think about food delivery more broadly and differently than we have before. On the education front, you've noted that policy is an, an opportunity for us coming out of the COVID experience, that we actually should be leaning in on policies affecting childcare, schools, technology, and the digital divide, the availability of connectivity and food. And what we've seen in Allegheny County is The value of government that is taking its cue from science and medicine in a moment where science and medicine should be taking the lead. And I think we're learning a very painful and difficult lesson about the value of good government in American society. Perfectly said. It's awesome. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. This has been terrific, and please keep up the amazing work that you're doing. We're very lucky to have you in Allegheny County. Thank you. And kids and families are very lucky to have you, so keep fighting. Thank you, Grant.